Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with James Esses. James was a psychotherapy student and he ran afoul of the trans lobby when he made some gender critical comments and then he was expelled from his program. Hey James, thank you for coming on. Pleasure, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I mean I gave a very rough brief summary there, but so I first heard about you a few months back, I guess. Um, probably have the timing a little off because because of COVID lockdowns, I'm not sure of what day it is anymore, but it was about a few months back that I read about your story. Um, if you wouldn't mind going into it in a little bit, like, you know, your background, how it happened, um, and then we can just go from there. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I came to the world of mental health and psychotherapy a bit later into my career. I started off working in law, uh, crime, like criminal defense and prosecution, um, and a stint in the public sector in the UK as well. And then I, I started volunteering at this, it's a helpline in the UK, it's called Childline. Um, it's very well known. It's basically a service for young people to come through and talk about anything that's going on for them. And, and that could range from relationship issues all the way up to feeling suicidal. Um, so I started doing that and I, I found it extremely fulfilling. I really appreciated being able to listen and hopefully as a result help these young people and I decided I wanted to do this with the rest of my life so I decided to do a transition of my own into this vocation so I um, I did a, a foundation certificate and then I signed up to a master's program five-year master's program in psychotherapy um, and I was at the time all of this kicked off I was just coming up to finishing my third year um, and I was really progressing along it. I mean, I'd just been signed off to set up a private practice. So imminently, I was going to be seeing paid clients and trying to build up a kind of client base um, that would enable me, hopefully, in the not too distant future to basically leave my job in the public sector and do this full time. So that's that's the stage that I was asked when this all, this all happened. Okay. Now, I know there's like i know like you've got like legal proceedings and stuff so if i ask anything that's gonna you know that you can't answer please just let me know but like so yeah. i just started curious like so were they just like okay you because i've seen some of this in the states and canada where you know the professor will say something or will tweet something and then you know they're out of a job or they're facing censure or they're facing so was it just like something along those lines or or did someone Okay. Or did someone, excuse me, or did someone just like, you know, go start offense mining and some of your stuff or like, how did that happen? So I, I mean, I, if I take you back a bit further, I began to get interested slash concerned in what was happening with children and, and treatment for, for gender dysphoria because of the young people I was speaking to on this helpline, the numbers were growing every year. Um, of young people telling me they were trapped in the wrong bodies. And a lot of them very young. A lot of them couldn't really define themselves what puberty or trans or sex or gender meant. So I, I decided to do a lot of reading um, of various research papers and literature on this issue. And I became more and more concerned about what I was finding in terms of young people potentially being kind of affirmed down a path of transitioning that they might not be able to get off. Um, so I started trying to speak out about this. I, I wrote a few articles 
Um, I was trying to meet like-minded people. Um, and I kind of co-founded this group of other practitioners called Thoughtful Therapists. And it's a group of practitioners who, who share similar concerns around mental health treatment for young people with gender dysphoria. Yeah, so I, I, I began to kind of immerse myself in all the literature. I, I began to get concerned that there wasn't enough discussion happening on this and that given that some of these young people were going down a medical or even surgical path that they might not be able to get off, uh, I felt that there needed to be more discussion within the mental health profession. So I, I co-founded this group of like-minded practitioners, what were called thoughtful therapists, trying to kind of have a dialogue about this because it seemed to be a lack of transparency amongst the professionals in this sphere. Um, one of the key first things we did and actually ended up being the catalyst for everything that happened to me was that I submitted a petition to the United Kingdom government, which members of the public over here can do. Anyone can submit a petition. Um, and it was to do with the conversion therapy legislation, which I know has um, been passed abroad, including I know recently in Canada and elsewhere. Um, there were concerns that the language might be so vague and ambiguous and lacking in nuance that it could potentially criminalise therapists who didn't simply affirm young people down a path of transitioning. So this petition was very simple and it said conversion therapy in the strict sense is abhorrent and this ban is the right thing to do, but we must explore, we must safeguard explorative therapy for children. That's what it was asking the government to do. I got 10,000 plus signatures which meant that the government had to respond to us, which they did. And it was a very favourable response. They promised to uphold the independence of therapists. They promised to safeguard young people and protect free speech. So really good stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd done a bit of associated publicity around the time of the petition. And then obviously there were people online who disagreed with me, a lot of activists, a lot of trans activists. So I was receiving some abuse online. And then one day in May, um, I think it was a, a Wednesday, uh, I received an email out of the blue from where I was studying my course, which is at a psychotherapy institute in London called Messanoia Institute. Um, I received an email saying that there had been a few complaints made about the petition, about my publicity, and could I come in for an informal conversation two days later? And I was immediately feeling quite anxious because I thought, well, I haven't, what have I done wrong exactly? I mean, all, all I've done is try to have a conversation about a really sensitive topic, but they reassured me and they said, it's, it's just an informal chat. There's nothing to be worried about. So I, I accepted, of course. And I said, I would come in two days later, 24 hours later, after receiving this first email, mm -hmm. another email popped into my inbox and it was entitled termination of contract. And in that email, I was told in two paragraphs that I brought that the Institute and the profession into disrepute and I was being expelled with immediate effect. Um, and so the meeting that was planned, the informal meeting never even happened. In fact, I never had a single conversation with anyone before they expelled me. A university or a college or anything, just to expel someone on their beliefs or expressing opinion. I mean, like, let's just take aside the, the therapy and all that aspect for kids, but just that on itself for a university. I mean, isn't that kind of like counter to the message or the mission of a university? Well, one would think so. I mean, of all places that we should have free and open debates, it should be in educational institutions. Yeah. Um, but one of the things you'd mentioned there about the legislation, uh, like the legislation that was going on in the UK. And then, yeah, the one that just passed in Canada is very similar. 
And I think, I don't know about the language in the one that was in the UK. I don't know about the language, but the one in, that just passed in Canada, because it was being passed in Canada before our last election, which was, you know, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, but then because the election came up, parliament has halted. So that one didn't get passed to the Senate. And so they had to reintroduce it. And when they reintroduced it, they introduced some new language. So that's why I don't know exactly what this version says. But from my understanding, it was wor- excuse me, worse than the other one. And yes, like you're right. They, they you know they talk about the conversion therapy for you know gay and lesbian uh, people, and you know, and right away as soon as you hear conversion therapy, people think of like electrodes and things like that. And you know, I don't think anyone really wants that unless you're like a hardcore, you know, fanatic or whatever, mm-hmm. like you know, that, that opposes it. But it's the gender critical stuff. Now, a lot of therapists in Canada have come out and said, well you're going to make affirming therapy the only thing possible. Now, I don't know, like when you were listening to these kids and you said you started like looking at the literature, like, you know, from the few people I've spoken to, it's, you know, it's, it's basically like what they said, like transing the gay away. So, I mean, it's, it's introducing a new form of conversion therapy in another sense anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I work closely with, with the gay community and, and that is a real concern of theirs. And I'm hearing all the time, you know, anecdotally that uh, for some families, maybe for some cultures, it's far preferable to have a kid who is trapped in the wrong body, but straight rather than just be gay. So so that is that is a concern. I mean, that's one of the things about this topic. I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll get onto it later in terms of the whole gender sex debate. This touches all areas of society. I mean, we've got the gay community being concerned. We've got um, women worried about their safety, their safe spaces, their rights as well, uh, when it comes to things like fair play in sports. And then we've got children and medicalization and parents and social workers and doctors, et cetera, being concerned about what we're doing here. So this is why it's exploded in the way that it has, because it really does touch upon almost every you know area of society that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, you know, like some of the things you mentioned there, like the, with the sports and all that. But with the with the kids, okay, someone's an adult and they want to do this. I am like, you know, whatever, fill your boots. You know, like that's make an informed consent. You're an adult, do whatever you want. But it's then after that that point, like what you'd mentioned, like you know, the sports and all that. Like I said, we can get into that later. But with the children, it's it's playing on the parents' fears that really, you know, that there's a huge problem there. Like, you know, would you rather have a, you know, a, a trans girl, a trans child or a dead child, like implying that the kids are going to commit suicide. Um, and it like, like that's, that's where it gets me. Like, I'm like, you're, you're playing on the parents' fears. And then something you'd mentioned there as well, the, you know, they'd rather have a, a kid that's trans than a kid that's gay or lesbian. I mean, code pink and pink news, you know, celebrate Iran and Pakistan because Iran and Pakistan will forcibly trans, uh, you know, like will forcibly transition someone if they find out that they're gay or lesbian and say, okay, well, you can either die or you can transition. And I've heard of some of that happening in like very fundamentalist Christian households where they'd rather have a trans child than a gay child because at least the trans child is okay. Then you are a woman or a man and you're in love with the opposite sex, right? You know, like it's, they prefer that. So like, are you seeing, 
or have you seen any of that or have you heard any of that like i like is it very prevalent out in the uk like i know it's not so prevalent here in canada or the u.s yeah, I, th- I think I think in pockets of, of society, possibly again, again, you know, they haven't really. I've certainly not come across any oh. proper research done into this, so it tends to be anecdotally. But I think the key thing is that there are real concerns. That this is that this is going on, and you know, these are concerns, for example, within the gay community. Um, I mean, touching upon what you said as well, like language is absolutely crucial when we're talking about parents and and possibly playing on fears you know it's, it's interesting because I, I always I feel like a broken record at this stage because I'm forever I'm, I'm forever saying you know gender dysphoria which in the UK you have to be diagnosed with in order to medically or legally transition is a mental health condition under the DSM um, but it's interesting the terminology we use so for example let's imagine a kid with anorexia the doctor wouldn't say to them here is an anorexic here is an anorexic child you would say here is a child with anorexia but with with gender dysphoria that seems to go out the window so what you get is you have a trans child as opposed to you have a child with gender dysphoria and that language is absolutely crucial because it 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 moves it away from this idea of it being a mental health condition i mean recently i read an article in a, in a left-wing publication in the UK, it's called Navara Media. And this is written by a trans individual and it gives tips and strategies on how to get um, cross-sex hormones. And it includes advising patients to basically mislead their doctors. And if the doctors try and bring up the topic of mental health, you're to deviate away from that. So there's this strange game going on where people are asking for potentially irreversible medication and surgery, but at the same time saying, this isn't a pathology, it's not a mental health condition, and if you say it is, you're transphobic. About, like, when you mentioned that, like, the, the therapy and all that, because I've spoken with like, a couple of detransitioners, one in the US and one in the UK, and both of them had, like, very similar stories. So when they were going to transition, uh, the one in the UK, um, I mean, her... You know, she detransitioned. She's back uh, as a woman now. She was 22 when she started transitioning, and the one in the states, she was, she was, I think, about 15 or 16 when she started to transition, and then she stopped by the time she was 18 and she transitioned. And the one in the U.S., like, I don't think she went through any surgery. She'd only just started taking some of the hormones and hadn't gone on to, you know, anything further. It was basically going into the doctor's office and then a few hours later having a prescription for testosterone or having a you know, prescription to get, like uh, the, the one in the UK, um, I mean, her name is Sinead, and she said it took her five months to get the appointment. That was just because of not enough therapists. It wasn't like a delay of, okay, we'll, we'll look into what's going on. Um, and But that as soon as she got in, it was just sped right along. So... I mean, from an ethical standpoint, shouldn't they at least look at see if there's any underlying issues? I mean, okay, so you were you were formerly a lawyer. Mm. Uh, I just think about all the you know, lawsuits they had with the you know the, the the repressed memories and the satanic worship stuff and the psychology, you know, like in like the psychology and psychiatric uh, professions back in like the eighties, I think even the nineties. I'm just thinking, okay, well, this is going to have far more blowback. Like, I mean, just like I said, just 
like an ethical and you know if you want to go legal standpoint like how can they not at least look into what's going on on the underlying things like you'd mentioned you know anorexia like you're going to try to treat the underlying issues of the anorexia instead of just force feeding someone right? <laughs> and 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 this is because the the language and the narrative has kind of been shifted which is away from this idea of it being mental health condition and more that it is it's just inherently who you are uh, i'm reading more and more materials including materials used in schools which suggest well don't even suggest which simply states that sex biological sex is on a spectrum or states that someone is assigned a sex at birth so once you go down that line of thinking then if somebody says they're in the wrong body it as far as they're concerned it that's not that isn't a mental health condition at all it's just who they are they're just revealing who they are to the world um so i think that's part of the problem with this i mean the legal landscape is still ch- quite fast changing in the uk there's, there's a few cases that you may have heard of them of kira bell um yeah. so you know which you know and originally the, the the high court said that um you know under 16s were very un- very unlikely to be able to consent to the type of medication transition that they're taking um that was overturned in the court of appeal and i'm aware that kira is now trying to seek permission to appeal to the supreme court so things may still change in this landscape um but yes i i've heard the same as you in terms of how once you're in front of the medical professionals how easy it can be to get the medication there are very long waiting lists even to get in front of somebody and i think that's not good i mean that that doesn't help anyone so i i and many of my colleagues would be calling generally for you know much quicker um routes to being in front of medical professionals for these young people but it's about what happens when they're in front of someone i mean for example it isn't mandated that one must try out forms of counseling or therapy before they start on puberty blockers or cross sex hormones um which given all of the literature and research shows that often there's lots of comorbidities when it comes to gender dysphoria and a lot of contributing factors one might think that might be a sensible route to go down before you start giving people very strong and potentially irreversible medication you said i'm I kind of focus a lot on the the, the, the children aspect of this. It's like I said, you know, adults should be allowed to do what they want, you know, within reason. Like, I still think they should get some sort of therapy instead of just, you know, affirmation care and just like, oh, you want to transition, go ahead and transition. But, you know, like, try to make, solve some of the, try to see if there are other underlying issues. But, I mean, I see some of the stuff that's happening in Canada, um, you know, there's one lawsuit that I know of. Um, I'd spoken with the lawyer. So the there's a little girl in kindergarten. The teacher asked, you know, where on the spectrum are you? So a kindergarten girl's five or six years old, and he had female at one end, male at the other end, and like a little spectrum in the you know, and she put herself all the way at female, and the teacher apparently berated her in class, and she comes home, she's all confused, she's kind of like stressed out and you know she i think she cried in front of her parents about what had happened and the, the parents said okay well you're that they took the, the the school to court like that's the stuff that i'm kind of like i'm really opposed to it's like you're not especially like a five or six year old a five or six year old you know if she said i'm always uh, she'd put boy at the other end i'm sure the the teacher would have been extremely pleased because she's you know she's picking something that she you know she's 
she's choosing a gender that she doesn't look like type of thing you know like so she i'm sure like i I, that's where it really gets me scared it's just like you're you're untethering kids from reality and if this keeps going on they're going to be adults who are completely untethered from reality i mean and that and that's not good for anyone yeah i mean i've seen certain narratives where it's um it, it moves away from accepting respecting someone to like celebrating and championing it I've, again i've seen school materials in which uh, there's like there's two planets there's like your there's the cisgender planet and then there's the trans non-binary planet and it shows stupid, like kids as like aliens moving between the two planets and like the cisgender planet just looks like planet earth which for the purposes of this like cartoon looks pretty boring. And then the trans non-binary planet is multicolored and it's got like fireworks and stars and sparkles and everyone's walking over to this planet hand in hand smiling. And, you know, subliminally, you know, what message is this giving to young people? I I think it could be giving them, some of them at least a message of, it's really cool and really special to, to do this thing. Um, and it's pretty boring to just be cis. And again, I've seen com- I've seen like um, trans commentators on Twitter specifically say that in their in their mind, being cisgender is boring or dull. I mean, what messages does this give out? Yeah, I've seen the same. I've seen something similar. It was with uh, all the different, like you know, you've got like you, know, you had the pride flag originally. Now you've got like so many different versions of that flag, and so they had, you know. Uh, trans flag, uh, uh, non-binary flag, like you know, like just a whole bunch of different flags for different gender identities, and they're all different colored, brightly colored, and whatever. And then you had the cis one, which was just gray. And it's like, okay, which one do you think a small child is going to go towards? <laughs> you know, it's like it's picking that. Uh, I just want to get back to some of the things you mentioned, like with the sports. Now. I, I, again, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe in the US and Canada, like to get psychotherapy, you actually have to have like a medical background and a medical degree first. Um, and then you can get into psychotherapy because I, 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 the difference between a psychologist and psychotherapist in the US and Canada is psychotherapists can prescribe medications where psychologists can't. People going to sports, I mean, you have a lot now in the US and Canada with the, especially with the high school, you know, kids sports and stuff like that. You have high school students going into, you know, female, like biologically male students going into female sports and things like that. I don't know if you had like that kind of medical training before or, but when you're looking at this stuff, you know, going into sports and they're taking it, like, would you be able to talk about some of like the issues with that? Yeah. I don't have a medical background. I mean, cause in, in the UK, psychotherapy is very much about, it's like counseling. It's like talking therapy. So you don't need to have a medical background, but we can certainly talk about, about the sports issue um and i've seen recently you know new guidelines being put out around you know levels of testosterone sorry i don't mean to interrupt and i just because i misspoke it's it was a difference between psychiatry and psychology yes Um, yeah yeah, okay so sorry about that i i I got that mixed up (laughs) okay um yeah i've seen guidelines being published around you know uh, acceptable levels of testosterone in, in one's body in, in order to enable them to compete in female sports, etc. Um, so this seems to be on the increase. Um, 
and I know a lot of trans groups are calling for more representation of trans athletes in the in the gender sex of their of their choosing. So, uh, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of female sports stars becoming quite anxious about this, actually, in terms of it undermining fair play and fair competition. Yeah, I mean, there's the one now at, uh, I can't remember what university it is. Um, Pennsylvania. In the U.S. Yeah, the, the swimmer. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think, I think the last race that was run or the last race they had, I don't know if, I guess you don't run a swimming race. Um, but they won by like 48 seconds, which is kind of unheard of. <laughs> you know, it's, or is it 48 or 4.8? But even then 4.8 seconds at that level of competition is huge. How have people become so, again, out of touch of reality? Like they're not, like, is this a case of just, okay, we, we have to respect this identity. Like has identity become that important an aspect of everything now that you have to respect that identity and you can't question it, even though it flies in the face of, of reality, basically. Well, I think we've developed um, hierarchies of identity and even kind of hierarchies of victimhood. And we kind of, we play, this is what happens when you engage in this identity politics. We you play groups of people off against each other. You know, historically, it was felt that women needed extra support and to be kind of given that equality that they deserved all along. And that was the focus. But now that the, now that the transgender stuff has, has hit the scene um, and people are terribly fearful of being labelled transphobe, etc., the priority is now making sure that those people are comfortable, even if seemingly it affects the rights uh, of women, because women are... Well, I don't know, less oppressed now than trans people or whatever. Um, I, I don't really like this whole comparison game at the end of the day. But often, you know, historically, we've seen that if you try and push the rights of one set of people, you end up taking away from someone else. Um, but I, I, I just, I, I find it strange. I mean, it, it's even just about the sense of fair play. I mean, you, you might recall... Uh, Laurel Hubbard, who was the Olympian, the, the weightlifter. Yeah. Um, uh, she didn't end up doing very well in the competition. Um, and a lot of people said, well, that, that shows that there's no issue being having been a biological male and competing in female sports. But the, the comeback to that is she was on the team. You know, she, she took the place of someone, a biological woman who could have been on that team and who should have been on that team. So it's it's not even about winning or losing. I mean, you pointed to the swimmer who did win significantly, and that you know that is relevant. But it's even the fact of you know almost pushing out other people who who should be on these teams. But I, it's difficult to know how to get around it because uh, I've read some commentary saying we should have men, women, and then everything else. You know, gen, you know, trans or non-binary or whatever. But I don't know how workable that is, and I don't think they would go for it either, because at the end of the day, these people are saying, I am the sex that I say I am, and you must you, know, you must respect that. Okay, now, how does that work with... Because I know there was a... Again, I've been following this for a little bit, but there... Uh, was it, so was I believe it was in 2019, 
there was a, you know, those pools out near London where they had like, you know, they were, I think they were, they were segregated by sex. So you had trans women coming into the women pools and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a uproar over that. So like, how does that work with going into women only spaces? Because I mean, again, like I can speak more to Canada. There was a, a rape clinic in Vancouver that was closed because they only wanted to treat you know, biological women and there's already a lack of rape shelters here to begin with mm. is there a legality to that like i mean i'm just wondering if okay as a woman or whatever it, it shouldn't you know because there are i think there's also one male only rape clinic in canada i could be wrong about that but you know if you want to go where somewhere you know they talk a lot about safe spaces and safety and all that but if a woman who's being abused wants to go somewhere and avoid men she should have that right and just because someone claims to be a woman, like that's where for me, it gets really fuzzy. Like you're, you're really encroaching on the rights of someone who needs, you know, quote unquote, a safe space. But then you're saying, okay, well, you have to give this person the same rights as you, even though, I mean, you know, they could just be self ID and yeah. look and do have done nothing about it. Yeah. We've, we've had a similar thing over here. I, th- I think it was up in Scotland that there was the head of a kind of women's refuge and basically said, you know, for those women who say that they would feel unsafe with someone who is trans in the refuge, they need to kind of like question their own morals, which was a very, very strange but quite worrying comment to make for very vulnerable women who, who need access to this space. I mean, you mentioned self-ID. You know, in, in the UK, we haven't legalised self-ID um, and, and not on demand. You, you can obtain something called a gender recognition certificate, in which in the eyes of the law you've you've swapped, but you have to go through a, quite a long drawn out process of that. Um, you have to have lived in the other gender for a number of years. You need to have been diagnosed, you need to pay some money, get the certificate. But so although we don't have like kind of legalized self-ID as it were, we, we've got a scenario in which because of toilets, bathrooms, no, no one's obviously policing this stuff. So people can just kind of go into whatever toilet they want. So you, and I, I hear quite frequently of, trans women going into female toilets um and so you're in a scenario in which women who feel uncomfortable with that or unsafe because of that don't really have much of a say in it in the matter because they you never quite know who's who's potentially in there with you now it's important to say this this isn't to say and i've heard this argument being thrown back you know this isn't to say that all trans women are predators or are a risk because that's nonsense and i don't think we should apply these type of things and, and kind of try and scaremonger people and apply a broad brush to whole groups of people. But it's more about how it makes the people feel. You know, it, it, it's understandable why women, particularly women who have experienced things in the past, would not want biological males or people with male genitalia in their changing rooms, in their toilets. Um, but the, for example, I attended a conference, a LGB Alliance conference in London a couple of months ago. Um, and afterwards, there was this um, kind of podcast that came out by this, this trans woman in the UK. She kind of went undercover, as she put it. Um, she hit a like she hit a microphone on her. Um, you know, she was going to expose all these transphobes and bigots. But like one of the things she ended up doing because people realised she was a trans woman and then it, it sparked off this whole debate and discussion. And one of the things she ended up doing was before she kind of left the building, she said she wanted to use the toilets. 
Um, and so she said very loudly, and very proudly to anyone who was listening in the foyer, I'm off to use the female toilets. Now, wh wh why is she doing that? Because in my mind, she's doing that to provoke and antagonize people. You know, the, what is the need for that? Yeah, I mean, okay, the toilet thing. Now, before this became a hot button, button issue, there were trans people and there were trans women who were using women's toilets and, you know, but these were, <clears throat> these were people who had, you know, taken steps either medically or, you know, cosmetically to pass as female and they were going in and, and as far as I know, there hadn't been any issues. But once the self-ID thing, because the self-ID thing in Canada is you can just ID. I mean, ever since we had Bill C-16 pass in 2016, and that just allowed people to self-ID. And that's when we had the famous case of Jessica Yaniv, who was suing 15 um, uh, spas because they wouldn't shave her balls <laughs> because, you know, she, you know, she wanted a bikini wax. And it's like, well, you've got balls and, you know, the, these you know, these spa technicians aren't trained to give bikini waxes to people with balls. <laughs> like it was just, um, but yeah, I mean, it was only when that kind of stuff started happening that this became an issue. So like you said, I mean, again, I think most people, okay, you know what? You feel more comfortable. You're, you're trans. And from what I understand, most trans people don't want to, bring that much focus onto their genitalia or that kind of attention to themselves anyways. Yeah. They just want to go about their lives living as best as they can, just like everyone else. So again, it was only after like this push of, you know, trans ideology and like, you know, gender theory and queer theory that this really started happening. So like, is it just a lack of curiosity and like, you know, some of the fields like, you know, like the counseling and the, like the psychology and the psychotherapy fields, like, is it just a lack of curiosity of why there's, I think in Canada, the numbers are like 4,000% increase in girls transitioning into men. I mean, like, is there something like that going on or is there it just, well, again, we're kind of, the strange thing is, you know, in the mental health professions and psychotherapeutic community, there's this move away from seeing it as, as a mental health condition and, to, and kind of move away from pathologizing people. So already the landscape has shifted. Again, also a lot of the people who, are, who run organizations or run, run the movements that kind of govern how therapists must act on these, excuse me, topics in the UK, a lot of them, are either activists on the trans side themselves or they've been captured for want of a better phrase. I mean, I think it's a mixture of people too scared to upset anyone um, and so don't want their reputation to be damaged so go along with this stuff. And I think it's a combination of people who are trying to do the right thing in respect of the people but aren't quite thinking it through. And then there's some people out there who are pushing an agenda or pushing an ideology. I think it's a combination of all of the above, but it's it certainly happened in the therapy profession. I mean, if we go back to my case, it, it all began because I start I wanted to have a conversation amongst the community, and I still haven't had that conversation. Um, and 
our, our group, Thoughtful Therapists, we've tried to reach out to our governing bodies and ask for meetings and ask for opportunities to submit kind of written papers that we've drafted on this topic. We get ignored or actually blocked uh, the head of a group called the Coalition Against Conversion Therapy, who basically governs um, a document that says how therapists must treat gender um, gender dysphoria. They, they blocked our email address when we reached out to them. So we can't even have the conversation in the first place. So um, it, it's strange. It's, it's, it's a very strange time to be working in this field. I mean, of all professions, one would think that therapy, which is founded on listening to people, you think they would be willing to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. But it, again, I mean, like so, so much of this stuff and it, you know, get a little far afield here but like even like some of the race stuff it, it all comes from like one kind of root of how you're looking at the world you're just changing the identity that you're there that you're focusing on but it just cuts out all dialogue like it's you know jessica yaniv is a woman no matter what and if you dispute the fact that you know she's a woman who wants to get her balls shaved you're an awful person. Now, again, more power to anyone who, you know, an adult or whatever, and like same thing goes for her. But at that point now you're forcing that on other people. And, you know, I mean, I'm just using her case because like we've got it now in Canadian jurisprudence that a bikini wax is something that is given to someone who is biologically female with a biological vulva. I mean, I, do we really need that in Canadian jurisprudence? Like, shouldn't it just be basic common sense? Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, I'm not trained to give a bikini wax to someone with testicles, so I can't give it to you. Like, I mean, instead of taking these, like, I think it was 15 women that Jessica took to court and to the Human Rights Tribunal. Like, you know, she had their businesses shut down. I mean, she basically ruined their lives. Um, And the fact that it got that far because, you know, we've, given up common sense well canada canada does seem to be quite a few steps ahead of us in the uk although it does feel like we're beginning to catch up but when we think of bill c6 bill c16 uh, particularly stuff around kind of you know quasi mandating pronoun use successor on pain of punishment that that also is a major concern but um it, there's a bit of a wave sweeping the globe and, and I see more and more countries treating it the same way. So um, going back to the conversion therapy ban and the various legislation, I, I did a bit of a research um, into all of the various bills that have been passed across the world. So many of them are copy and paste jobs, literally using exact phraseology. There was one bill which was almost an exact replica of another one. That, that says to me that people aren't doing their own independent thinking on this matter. They're just copying what everyone else is doing to try and, I don't know what, keep face or something like that. I mean, in the UK, they're, they're seemingly trying to rush through this ban and they, it was put out to a public consultation for six weeks. Now, public consultations in the UK, by the government's own standards, should usually be a minimum of 12 weeks, if not longer, for very complex issues. But they said six weeks. They received a hell of a lot of pushback, including from myself and colleagues. And then last week, they decided to extend it by a further two months. 
which is the right thing to do. But again, I go back to why were they trying to rush this through in the first place? I heard, I've heard activists, I've heard organisations, trans organisations in this country saying we should have no consultation whatsoever. We should stop doing research. The time now is to act and to pass legislation. It appears to me that they're trying to avoid proper scrutiny. And, and why might that be? You know, do they have something to hide? That's the inference. Yeah. Um, could you mention Kira Bell? Now, in Canada, when Bill C-6 was being debated, because the, the new one is Bill C-4. That's the one that passed. Because like I said, they had to reintroduce it. There was almost no consultation. There was almost, there, I believe there was no debate in Parliament. Um, but when the initial consultation was happening for Bill C-6, you had politicians getting up and saying, oh, detransitioners are just a right-wing smear or a right-wing you know, conspiracy. And like, what's the, like, how is the, how does that work in the UK? Like, is, like, you know, obviously with Kira Bell, that was very famous, but is that getting more purchased now that, okay, you know what, there is actually a growing detransition or there is something like that, or is it just being swept under the rug still? Yeah, it's, it's not getting the same attention that it, it deserves. And a lot of detransitioners as a result of the landscape um, and the hostility towards them are too afraid. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I posted things recently about looking at people who have undergone double mastectomies, kind of that my thoughts are with these detransitioners who've lost part of the body that they can never get back. There is zero empathy coming from the other side. There is, well, they were obviously never trans to begin with, or they were just attention seeking. So like that kind of attack, or there's like diminishing what they've gone through. So I've had people over the last few days actually attack me because of this comment about detransitioners losing their breasts and people basically compare it to having your wisdom teeth taken out or having your appendix out and basically saying you need to get over it. It's not that big a deal. I mean, there's such a lack of empathy. And these are the same people who probably have hashtag be kind in their Twitter handle. I mean, it's very scary. I mean, I've seen, I've seen someone, I can't remember her name, She's like, oh, you can always just go and get them put back on. Like it's, it's just that simple. I mean, the again, the detransitioner thing. Like they, it's like you were never really trans. Now, like I, I see that a lot in the Muslim community of someone who leaves Islam. It's like, oh, you were never really Muslim. You're just, you're just pretended to be. Now, in that, I guess you can. That argument might hold a little bit more sway, but someone who's actually gone through the steps of having surgery performed on themselves. I mean, you don't do that just for a lark. Like, I mean, it's, you know, okay, you can get double mastectomies. And if you get bottom surgery as well, I mean, you're going, you know, even further. And if that person after a while, this, you know, comes to the realization or whatever, just like I wasn't trans, this was rushed through or for whatever reason, they want to detransition at that point. Again, I don't know how that goes through someone's head. Oh, you were just, you were just doing that for a lark. Like, I don't think anyone does that just for a lark. <laughs> well, they, 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 in some ways, their ideological beliefs force them into making that type of remark because otherwise it would, otherwise they would be forced to confront this idea actually that this is relatively untested, um, you know, medical surgical transitioning, and actually it can end up causing real damage to people. And that would then undermine their arguments about opening this stuff up further, particularly to younger children. So they're almost, 
if they're going to follow their ideology, they almost have to follow through with this type of argument, which obviously doesn't it doesn't stand up under scrutiny. I mean, again, I often hear um, this line: "Well, detransitioners make up such a small percentage of people who have transition of you know trans people. They make up one percent. That's the figure they use. In reality, it's it's certainly a hell of a lot more. People are just too afraid to speak out. But let's go with their line of one percent. They say." Why are we focusing all this attention about 1% who regress it? It's such a small number. And then I always say back to them, but trans people in the UK only make up 1% of the population. You can't have it both ways. You can't say 1% is relevant in this scenario, but isn't in another. Yeah, it's it's the minority within the minority, right? Like it's it gets left out a lot. It, 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 it keeps happening. I mean, I, I got into this this whole kind of conversation was because of, you know, when I criticized Islam, I was told I was a white supremacist and I just wanted to know where that came from. And I was like, okay, I was the minority within the minority that was getting attacked at that point. And it was just like, and it's the same thing here. The, like, I look back to this book I read, um, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch. I don't know if you've read it. Um, and he, he calls this thing um, the humanitarian threat to liberal science. And he was writing about the, the late eighties, early nineties. And, you know, he talked about speech codes in the U S and college campuses back then. It was, it was all based on race. It's like, Oh, you can't you know, people being banned in the late eighties up until like 91, 92 because, Oh, you're using racist language. So that had already started happening. And in my mind, this is like a continuation of that. It's just like, you're, you're harnessing people's goodwill and you're using it to like bad ends. Like, you know, again, I don't think anyone, most, most people wouldn't want a child to commit suicide. Most people wouldn't want a child to like self harm or anything like that, but they would also probably want the child to get therapy or some sort of counseling instead of just going along with, okay, well, and you're, must be a girl. Now we'll just pump you full of drugs or you must be a boy now and we'll just pump you full of drugs. I mean, like, I, I don't know if you saw that when you were, you know, studying to be a psychotherapist, like where they're focusing on people's goodwill, like, okay, well we have to, like, like I said, you know, would you want a trans child or a dead child? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the risks, the, the suicidality rates, et cetera, are, are often used. But then it, when you dig deeper and you look at some of the research studies, you see that the suicide rates are still high after transitioning, um, which again is suggestive that this is about more than this issue. That, uh, and again, a lot of the young people I spoke to, I mean, some of them themselves were kind of um, quite young, but they, they, you know, they were convinced that they, they had to transition they, and that would, you know, they needed us. Um, they were kind of, they couldn't see any other route towards living their life other than going down that path. But I would often kind of ask an open-ended question along the lines of, okay, well, let's now imagine, let's do a little experiment. Let's imagine two, three years down the line, you've transitioned. Are you going to be happy with yourself? Is everything going to be cool? And most of the time they would respond along the lines of, well, no, there's actually lots of other things I don't like about myself too. And we would open this up into a discussion of actually, it isn't just about their bodies and their sex. It's about a general disease in themselves and in the world around them. 
And I think for some young people that gets projected onto this, particularly when you're told there's a quick fix, because it's very rare in, in health, mental health and, and physical health for there to be a kind of silver bullets along the lines of if you, if you do this, you'll be fine. But I think that's the myth that's sometimes sold about transitioning. If you take these puberty blockers and these hormones, and if you maybe go on to have the surgery, and if you change your pronouns, everything will be hunky-dory. Um, in reality, that isn't the case. But I think it can be quite appealing, particularly to a young person who feels so out of place in their bodies or in the larger world. Okay, kids don't usually have a lot of patience to begin with. You know, I just think back to like when I was a kid. Summer seemed to last forever, like your summer holidays, because, you know, in relation to your life, it's it is much longer, and as you get older, like it, it just seems to go by quicker. Is that part of it? Like, are they playing? I mean, okay, psychologists, psychotherapists, like psychiatrists, all mental health professions. You're trained to work with people's psyches. Like, so is there some exploitative aspect of that where it's like, okay, you know, these kids are impatient; they want to get things done. This might seem like. Is there some of that in there? Like, I, I, obviously, okay, this is each individual person, like each individual therapist, whatever is, is different. They're doing it for different reasons. But I'm just curious, like in the in the governing bodies or like when you, when you try to get a consensus for a bunch of people, like is there some aspect of playing on that impatience or playing on that, you know, lack of judgment from the child? Well, I think a lot of the powers that be would view this child as that they know themselves best than anyone else and therefore... It's almost like a kind of consumerism type argument, but you know, they, they know themselves, they know what they want. You know, it's not our job to stand in the way of it. But but actually, if you're if you're conducting you know ethical therapy and you're upholding your full duties, you don't simply go along with what everyone says in other contexts. You don't simply kind of nod along. That's not what a therapist is there to do. A therapist, of course, should always be respectful and polite, and a therapist shouldn't try and force their own ideology on someone, but they also shouldn't just affirm everything that they hear. Um, again, if we go back to the example of, let's say, let's say body dysmorphia, you know, somebody feels that they are, for whatever reason, extremely ugly. Let's say they feel that they're obese, even though they're not. Um, what is a therapist going to do in that scenario? Are they going to go, well, yes, if you feel that you're obese and ugly, then yes, you are. And maybe, yes, maybe you should have plastic surgery. Of course, they're not going to do that. They're going to take time to explore, okay, well, what is the root cause of these feelings? What else has happened in your life that's contributed towards this? But for people who feel a mismatch between their gender and their biological sex and their genitals, that seems to go out the window. So it's, we don't have a consistent thread in terms of how we treat this in comparison to how we treat other things. I mean, you made an interesting point about the nature of children. You know, puberty, adolescence is a time for children to explore and experiment. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cliche that children go through this kind of phase of experimenting, whether it's through like rock music or goth, goth culture or whatever else it might be. Um, and what tends to happen is children rebel. They explore these other cultures, these other ways of being. And then eventually, more often than not, they'll kind of grow out of it, for want of a better phrase. But because we've introduced into the mix like very strong, potentially irreversible medication, it actually doesn't allow for that kind of playful experimentation um, that they could grow out of, because they're already down a path of medicalization that's very difficult to get off. But, you know, historically, gender dysphoria was treated, the term was called watchful waiting. And it, it really was, as it says on the tin, it was just giving it time with some counseling in the mix. And by and large, 
the stats tend to be around eight out of 10 young people would just grow out of it, for want of a better phrase. They would just settle into themselves. But I think by introducing puberty blockers at such a young age, we're potentially robbing those children of having the chance to settle into themselves. Yeah. And it's, again, I'm just concerned about the harm that's being done. Look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Um, but, I mean, if you can talk about it, do you, like, going forward with yourself, do you know what's, like, you know, what you're going to be doing, where you're going to be going from here, where you're, like, you know, what he plans? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been a very difficult few months. I kind of feel like my repu- my reputation has been trashed. I mean, the, the, the same day that I was expelled, my, my university course that I was on, they went onto Twitter and publicised the expulsion, um, which I still can't quite get my head around. So I, I'm... It's almost as if my vocation is kind of dead in the water before it even began. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around that. It's also difficult because the reason I chose that course is that I've got a full-time job to pay for the course and to keep a roof over my head. And it was the only course I could find of this type of therapy that ran on weekends. So it it does seem for the moment as if this entire thing is on pause. And I I am worried about my reputation more generally um, into the future. So... My focus at the moment is on this court case. Um, I'm taking both the institution that I was studying at as well as the accreditation body that kind of oversees um, the course. I'm taking them both to the employment tribunal on the basis of discrimination against my beliefs on sex and gender and on treatment for gender dysphoria. So, I mean, litigation is a last resort, but in, in my case... Yeah. the only resort because I as I said I never even had a conversation with the university about this um, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without the generosity and kindness of people both home and abroad in terms of donating to my crowdfunding page which at last check is almost £80,000 which I mean it, it's incredible and the messages I receive it shows just how strong people feel about free speech and about safeguarding children but I'm I'm basically just waiting for the court date I've got a preliminary hearing at the start of January and then a trial date will be set but I've been told by my legal team that it, it could be end of 22, possibly even 23 before we get a trial. God. Yeah, well, the legal system even here just moves so slowly with some of these things. Yeah. Um, I was saying, I don't want to keep you too much longer. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, um, like your your crowdfunding link, whatever, I'll put it in the description, okay. but you know, go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, my, my Twitter platform is kind of where I post most of my thoughts these days I tend to post quite a bit on mostly on this topic but I do branch out other things so yeah Twitter it's just my name James Essers you can find me um, and then yeah if you can post the link to the crowdfunding page and there's also a link to that in my um, in my bio on Twitter but the, the crowdfunding page gives all the details of the case and I post regular updates and progress as we go along um, also I have my email address on my Twitter profile so and I appreciate people reaching out to me. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, either to tell me about their own personal experience of this or to just have a dialogue or ask a question about this, I'm, I'm always happy to speak to people. Again, thanks so very much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Yeah. And good luck. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully you can get this sorted out. I hope so. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening.